Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So if you don't have moral people, you're not going to get a free society. That's just a sort of basic fact. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back to the Lions of Liberty podcast, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty. This is episode number 173. You can find the show notes for today's show over at lionsofliberty.com slash 173. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select. This is an incredibly exciting alternative to the standard corporatist Obamacare insurance that so many of us have become saddled with. Start the new year right by getting a fresh start with your health care. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is an associate professor of political science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. She is also the faculty advisor to the RIT College Libertarians. Her current area of research is on the politics of women and the family in classical liberalism. And to that effect, she is recently the author of the book Family and the Politics of Moderation, Private Life, Public Goods, and the Rebirth of Social Individualism. She is Professor Lauren K. Hall. Lauren, are you ready to roar? Absolutely. All right. Well, Lauren, like I mentioned, much of your work is on classical liberalism and the family. And I want to touch on a lot of the issues related to that. But first, I want to learn a little bit more about yourself. So why don't you just tell us kind of how you got here? How did you first come into your political views? And how did you take interest in the subject of classical liberalism? Um, That's a good question. It's a kind of circuitous path. Um, My dad's actually libertarian. He made me read Hayek's Use of Knowledge in Society when I was in high school. Um, And of course, I thought that was really lame. And so I went on to uh, work for a bunch of progressive organizations. Um, Uh Uh-oh, rebelling at an early age, huh? (laughs) That's right. When I was in college, I got really interested in uh, evolutionary psychology, but I was also a philosophy major. And when I applied for to grad schools, I ended up landing in a department with a guy named Larry Arnhart, who studies the links between political theory and evolutionary psychology. And he also was really interested in classical liberal thought. So I took a course with him on Friedrich Hayek's thought, another one on Adam Smith. Uh, And what I found is that there was a ton of really interesting connections between evolutionary theory and classical liberal thought. And then that led into a lot of my research now, which looks at spontaneous orders and uh, Adam Smith, the invisible hand, and then uh, sort of segues into a lot of my work on the family. Well, what is the, can you delve into that connection a little bit more between classical liberalism and, and evolutionary theory? Because I've never really heard much about that. So maybe my, my listeners might be interested in getting a little more detail there. Yeah. So there's a huge sort of tradition within the classical liberal uh tradition, um, on this idea of spontaneous order. So Adam Smith calls it the invisible hand. Um, Friedrich Hayek calls it uh, cosmos. The idea basically is that change happens in an evolutionary kind of way as a bottom-up process. So individuals acting together make kind of changes. uh, They create societies that you could never have predicted from the sort of constituent elements. So it's, it's kind of the difference. The spontaneous order is the, is 
the difference between the sort of bottom up approach that relies on individuals versus a top down approach where you have, you know, say a monarch who just says, this is what society is going to be like, and this is how we're going to do it. Um, so if you look at people like Adam Smith, Hayek, again, um, it actually goes all the way back to, to people like Aristotle. Um, the idea is that real social change happens at the individual level. Um, and of course, that's exactly the same kind of idea that we see with natural selection and, uh, and other kinds of theories, um, or mechanisms of evolution. Uh, there's a bunch of other connections that can get sort of as detailed as you want. But the major argument is that uh, is that you really have to focus on sort of bottom-up change when you're talking about any kind of, uh, of social phenomenon. That's really where the magic happens. So just for people that might not be as, as familiar with the term, I know a lot of my listeners will be, but what exactly is classical liberalism as opposed to, say, what we might hear today about modern libertarianism, we always hear about minarchism, anarchism, and all these other terms. So where would classical liberalism sort of fall into that realm? Um, I personally think sort of libertarianism, minarchism, are they're, they're sort of subsets of classical liberalism. Um, classical liberalism takes its roots from, you know, the, the sort of original liberals, people like John Locke were the original sort of natural rights thinkers. But then classical liberalism kind of develops out of that tradition. And you start seeing uh, this movement toward kind of limited government, but with an understanding that the government may still have an important role to play. So I consider classical liberals more sort of moderate than, say, libertarians or definitely than, than minarchists. They see a greater role for the state. Um, but it includes people like Adam Smith, Friedrich Hayek, Edmund Burke, um, a lot of those guys. And the basic argument is that, look, you want to keep government as small as possible, but there's still probably going to be some role for government in providing for some kind of basic social safety net, uh, roads, you know, uh, all that good stuff. So uh, I do think that modern libertarianism is a is really sort of a subset of classical liberal thought. But I think classical uh, liberals would see themselves as kind of broader than uh, than the current libertarian movement and able to encapsulate kind of a lot of different uh, views of what the role of government should be. Lauren, what's your view on, I guess, the specifics of the important roles that government should play, I guess, seen through the eyes of classical liberalism? Because some people might be listening and say, ah, social safety net, ah, my brain hurts. I don't, I hate that word because I'm an anarchist. So what would you say to people that, that I guess, have that view that anything the government does is, is bad? And how would you reconcile that with the classical liberal concept of limited government? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So my, my view of sort of the legitimate role of government is that that government isn't bad as long as it grows out of the sort of traditions of the people themselves. So I, I sort of take a Burkean, uh, you know, uh, the philosopher Edmund Burke, uh, view of the importance of things like common law. So it's, it's not that you can't have or shouldn't have any laws at all, but that the laws have to be, they have to grow out of the way that the people themselves behave. You can't impose law on people from a above. Um, I will say that I'm becoming more and more sympathetic to certain uh, strands of anarchist thought. <laughs> I just, I got back from a, a conference. Getting on, off the reservation here. <laughs> I know. Uh, I got back from a conference on anarchy uh, about a month ago. I think there's a lot to be said for it. I do think that there's just going to be some fundamental problems that I think it's going to be very, very difficult for anarchy to solve. Um, I, I personally think the problem of children, I mean, this is partially why my research on the family um, or sort of how I got interested in my research on the family. Um, I think the problem of children is a really fundamental problem. There needs to be somebody who's capable of, of sort of protecting the most vulnerable in the population. I think that's almost always not the government, but 
at some point you have to have somebody who can protect people from force and fraud. Um, and I think in a lot of cases, that's going to be the government. Yeah, that's just one area. Let's delve a little bit further into the issue of children there, because I think it is a difficult one for everybody, no matter what political view you're sort of coming from with it, because, you know, we, we have certain laws and they apply differently to children and, you know, to full, fully grown adults, such as um, the age of consensual sex. Now, we have s- certain states that either have it at like 17, 18, there might even be some where it's 16, but it's really hard to objectively say where the exact day is that a child becomes someone that can fend for themselves, someone that can make decisions for themselves, and someone that can make a big decision, such as when to have sex, you know, on their own. But I don't really know how we can actually get to that exact day. It seems like our laws are very arbitrary. Now, if we look at, you know, if we look at the big picture, we can say, yeah, it's very obvious. A five-year-old cannot consent to an act like that, cannot fend for themselves, cannot go buy food. This person needs to be uh, watched over and have someone else make decisions for them. Then we go to the other other obvious end. If someone is 25 years old, we can say, yes, they're, they're a fully grown functional human being. They can make the sort of decisions for themselves. They can fend for themselves. So I mean, what's your view on how we kind of come to that, that point where we decide a person is at a level where they can sort of fend for themselves and they should be viewed more as an adult than as a, a, perhaps a dependent? And I, and I don't expect an easy answer because I know there's not one, but I'm curious your view on that. Yeah, I think, you know, any law is going to have a certain amount of arbitrariness, or at least maybe not, you know, arbitrary might not be the right word. It's going to be laws have to be general. So that means that they have to incorporate a lot of different people and they have to ignore a lot of very, you know, specific kinds of variables. Um, I think when it comes to kids, I think our society has is is not doing it well. Um, I think we infantilize kids much more than they than they need to be infantilized. I think we assume that kids are not capable of, of a lot of things that they are in fact capable of. So um, I'm very sympathetic to the free range parenting movement. I'm very sympathetic to the idea that we need to give our, our kids a lot more freedom um, and responsibility and let them practice being free and responsible adults before we throw them you know, out the door at, at 18. You know, as for when things like consensual sex uh, make sense, I think that, you know, our society has sort of stumbled on 16, 17, 18 as a, as a reasonable uh, time frame. I think that makes sense. I think, you know, one of the things that we try to do with our consensual sex laws is we try to take into account the age differences between the people involved. So if you're a 16-year-old and you have sex with an 18-year-old, the 18-year-old probably won't get busted in most states. But if you're a 16-year-old and, you know, there's a 40-year-old uh, having sex with you, then the 40-year-old's probably going to be in trouble. So a lot of it, I think, has to do with the the sort of power differentials between the people and, and how we can understand sort of the concept of consent. The idea being that the more age difference there is between two people, the more the older person comes from a position and place of trust, uh, the less consent becomes possible, right? The more manipulation there probably is involved. And I think any libertarian wants to avoid force or fraud. And, you know, so so anytime you're talking about uh, engaging young people into really deep kinds of emotional acts, you want to make sure that consent is involved. Uh, and I, I think that's, I and mean, that seems pretty straightforward to me. Yeah, it's not it's not really a legal term, but I think we can kind of also go by the the creepy scale. I mean, a 16-year-old <laughs> with an 18-year-old, it's like, okay, I mean, they're both kind of young kids. A 16-year-old with a 40-year-old, you're like, oh, that that's that's just creepy. So, and people probably think that way for a reason cuz it is. Clearly the 40-year-old has a much greater intellectual capacity to, you know, think about the consequences of their actions than a 16-year-old, and that's right. why that application would and probably should be different. Right. Right. I want to get to uh, the, the kind of the, the focus of your work, which is the family and classical liberalism. So how do you kind of merge these two subjects? What's the exact connection there? 
Well, I got really interested in the works of Edmund Burke um, when I was sort of finishing up grad school. I didn't really do a lot with him until I got interested in his rights theory. Um, and so I, I kind of delved a little bit into his understanding of rights. And he he moves away from the traditional sort of modern, early modern liberal understanding of rights as, you know, John Locke has these, you know, natural rights, life, liberty, and property. And Burke says, yeah, 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 those exist, but they only exist within a social context. And so you have to apply them sort of within the the context of the laws and traditions of the people, um, of the people themselves. Now, one of the things that ties, for, that, that for Burke ties society together is what he calls an intergenerational compact. And so it's the kind of duties that we have to pass on the values of our society to the next generation. And so this is his argument against the revolution in France. He says, look, you you know, the French are not only destroying, they're not only revolting against a tyrant or someone that they see as a tyrant, but they're totally destroying their social norms and values, right? They're, they're destroying their traditions. And that's really dangerous because voluntary cooperation, which is the root of, of any decent society, rests on certain agreed upon norms and values. So if you chuck those out the window, then you, you have absolutely nothing left but force. So it's sort of a libertarian's worst nightmare. So then I started thinking about sort of how, well, where, where do we get our norms and values from? Well, most of the time we get them from our families, right? We're habituated into norms and values from the time that we're born. Um, when we learn to talk and walk, we're also learning how to be moral, responsible individuals. Uh, and so I just started getting really interested in sort of how we pass on our values to our children and the role that raising free and responsible individuals, the role that that plays in a modern a libertarian state. And so it turns out that families are absolutely crucial for a functioning libertarian society. So if we had a bunch of people that were just sort of, you know, plopped out, never raised by a family, it might not be uh, never had these positive influences on them. It might not be be the best scenario. Is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, it'd be pretty bad. So we I mean, we learn how to be moral people by practicing morality. It's the exact same way that we learn how to how to speak a language, right? We just practice, we listen to it, we see how people behave. And so a lot of actually, I mean, there's work being done in neuroscience and, um, and in psychology. And what they find is that moral development starts uh, from the time of infancy. So six month olds watch their parents faces, they learn facial expressions, they start imitating people. And so you learn how to be a moral person by practicing and watching other moral people. Um, and so if you if you don't have moral people around to practice and, and watch from, you're, you're not going to be able to, to develop the kind of uh, moral behaviors that you really need. And I think this is one thing that, that a lot of libertarians intuitively understand, but maybe don't recognize as much as they should, um, is that libertarianism is a fundamentally moral philosophy. In order to to have freedom, you have to be able to voluntarily cooperate with people. That's why force is unnecessary. So if you don't have moral people, you're not going to get a free society. That's just a sort of basic fact. Well, exactly. And that's why I sometimes take issue with anarchists that will just say, all right, just rip it all off. Take the government away. It's like you're, you're focusing in the wrong area because it, ultimately the government, whatever government we end up having is going to be somewhat of a reflection of the morality of the populace. So if you're just focusing on the structure and saying, take this government structure away, but you leave the same morals in the people, well, those people are going to just build new institutions that are committing the same, I guess, moral injustices that you're angry about now. So if you're not focusing on in the right area and focusing on the morals, well, I mean, everything else you're doing is kind of a fruit. Effort. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. 
Yeah, I think libertarians can actually take a lesson from that as well. When we talk about, you know, being raised by moral people and being raised by a family and that's how we get our morals. Well, if we want to see morals change, we want to see change in the world. We should just basically be what we want other people to be. If we want people to live in a world where there's not less aggression or non-aggression, then that's what we should act in our lives in all aspects of our lives. Instead of maybe just shouting from the rooftops and screaming, we should make more of an effort to, I guess, be an example of what we want to see. Exactly. Exactly. Now, Lauren, you've done some work on the gender wage gap, and uh, this is something it's kind of a, it's become just sort of a, a key political phrase that you hear out there and uh, to the point where I'm not even sure exactly what it means. So can you first tell us just what is the gender wage gap or, or what we're told it is and maybe address, you know, how much legitimacy is there is to it and if it's actually a problem that needs addressing, perhaps by government? Yeah. So the gender gap in general actually refers to a, a bunch of different sort of areas of inequality between men and women. So there's work that's been done on the gender wage gap. And the wage gap is essentially the the uh, often cited statistic that women earn 70 cents uh, for every dollar that men earn. Um, but there's also the ambition gap, for example, the political gap, the idea that uh, there's so few female CEOs, there's so few female um, uh, politicians, uh, especially high level politicians. So I'll address sort of the wage gap and then and then move into the others because they're connected. Um, but so the 77 cents on the dollar, um, uh, statistic is, is what you get if you look at just women and men without taking into account any of the variability, um, within the two groups. So it's true. Women earn about 77 cents on the dollar for every, uh, for do- every dollar that men earn. Um, what that doesn't take into account is whether they're working part-time or full-time, whether, uh, what industry they're in. So obviously daycare workers will make less than engineers. Um, and so once you take into account all of these different variables, so whether, uh, men and women are working part-time, or full-time, the kind of industry that they're in, the amount of time that they've taken off for things like maternity leave and so forth, uh, what you find is that the gender gap, uh, the wage gap almost disappears. It comes down to about 97 cents for every dollar that men earn. Um, and part of that seems to be that women are just less good at negotiating raises than men. Um, oh, that's going to be a controversial statement. Wait till I clip off that soundbite and spin <laughs> it around the internet. <laughs> Well, there's actually a lot of I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that because uh, there's a lot of research that demonstrates that um, women are less likely to ask for raises and they're less likely to to promote themselves to uh, to get raises. And why do you think that is? Is there a specific is this more of an evolutionary thing of, of how women just are, I guess, in their DNA or is it maybe a societal thing about you know, how women are supposed to assert themselves or something like that? I think it's definitely a societal thing. Although, I mean, I'm, there there could possibly be certain kinds of evolutionary pressures that would push women in that direction too. Um, I think women are between a rock and a hard place. I don't think government will solve it, but I, but I think that women get a lot of messages that being strong and being uh, capable and pushing for what they think they deserve uh, is going to make them look like you know a bitch, right? I mean, that's the the, the sort. I'm of... glad you said it and not me. <laughs> Um, so, you know, aggressive, uh, um, and not even aggressive, just women who, who push for what they deserve might fear that their bosses are going to, uh, feel attacked. Um, and so a lot of women, I think, fall back on a kind of, well, I'll be recognized if I, you know, if I work really hard, um, men aren't under that same kind of restriction. So there's definitely societal barriers that, that I think women are, uh, that women face that men don't. Um, the question is what's government going to do about that? Right. I mean, it's not government's job to make me a better negotiator. That's, that's something that I need to just, you know, step up. And, and once I'm aware of it, 
I can go in and I can try to sort of do my best uh, within the limitations of the system. But, you know, the three cents for every dollar that men work, you know, the, the 97 cents for every dollar that men earn is is not as serious of a disparity as the 77 cents that a lot of people throw out there. And so once you realize that that it's actually a pretty minor gap between men and women, um, and that almost none of it is due to actual discrimination, the role for government is minuscule. You know, there, there's just not much government can do when you're looking at these really basic questions about choices that men and women make. And so one of the reasons that we have a wage gap between men and women is that women tend to go into lower paid jobs like uh, the service industries, nursing, um, child care, education. Men tend to go into more lucrative jobs um, like STEM fields. And you're not going to the government's not going to be able to change people's minds about the kinds of living they want to make. Sure. Unless you get them out there just demanding that X amount of women must become engineers or, you know, X amount of women must go into these fields. And then I don't think anybody wants that solution where the government is is tossing, telling everybody what job they should take in the name of equality. It really sounds like the opposite, whereas any any gap that there may be comes down to the fact that we have freedom, that we have choices and that women just tend to make in general so many different choices than men do. I mean, I'm sure they exist, but personally, I've never seen a female garbage lady there. They might be out there, but I've only seen men and out there, you know, lifting up my garbage every single week. And I don't think that's because there's any law that says that only men should do it. And I don't think there's any law that is preventing women from doing it. It's just the choices that people make. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So once you, you know, once you start looking at a lot of these gaps, um, what you find is that they're just, they're gaps that rational individuals are, you know, the different choices that rational individuals are making in their lives. Um, and the same is true for the ambition gap. So if you look at why women don't become CEOs and they don't become, you know, by and large presidents of the United States, at least not yet, um, it's because a lot of those jobs are incredibly demanding and they take women uh, away from their families at the most demanding time for, uh, for those families. And so most women don't want to give up having children um, in order to pursue high-level careers. And most women make different choices about how to balance work and family life than men do. So again, you see a lot of a lot of variability in the system because we have freedom. And that is not something that I think that we need to fix. <laughs> And, yeah. and, and if we see variability because of freedom, then it, to me, it seems like the only way we're going to see, I guess, what you might call equality or less variability would be to lose freedom. And I don't know, maybe there are people out there who are a fan of that, that, that direction, but uh, I'm personally not. And I don't think most of my listeners are going to be as well. Hello, Lauren, speaking of freedom, I want to take a minute to tell our listeners about how they can see a little more freedom in their health care. And that's through the amazing product offered by our sponsors at Health Excellence Select. As someone who purchases my own health insurance, I was completely frustrated by my escalating premiums and deductibles after the implementation of Obamacare, and this forced me to seek an alternative. And I found that alternative in the concept of health sharing, where groups of like-minded individuals get together to voluntarily cover each other's medical costs. Health Excellence Select will help you take charge of your health care without having to deal with all the costs and hassle of handling paperwork and spending hours on the phone with bureaucrats just trying to get paid. They will handle all the dirty work for you while also providing tons of valuable tools to help you stay healthy. Listeners of this program can get the VIP treatment and get signed up directly by my great representative, Jeff Cantor. Give him a call at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. Until then, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health for more information. Now, as you might imagine, um, and I have a lot of friends who are... Uh, 
Bernie Sanders fans. They uh, bring mm-hmm. his name up a lot in conversation. And one thing that they love that he's always talking about is how, just like he says, every single civilized nation in the world or every industrial nation in the world has paternal leave, either provided by the government or mandated by the government. And we, these, this barbaric United States, does not make these same demands of, of the companies or does not provide maternal leave to parents. So what what is your view on that? I mean, obviously, you think there is some role for the state in, ter- in terms of a possible social safety net for some people. But, uh, you know, some people might expand that to even the point of if we're going to have any social safety net, we need to have a net for our mothers. If nothing else, how could we not if we're a civilized society? So what is your view on, on the government mandating any sort of, I guess, parental leave? Sure. Um, I think that's a difficult question. I'm certainly against government mandating it. I, But I also, you know, maternity leave in particular is really important. Uh, giving birth is incredibly physically and emotionally demanding. And when it comes to bonding and recovering from birth, all of the health indicators are that it's better to have you know, around three months, if not a little bit more time to recover and bond with your infant. That being said, mandating maternity leave uh, does actually, it doesn't do women any favors other than the the ability to bond with their kids. So it actually could harm them professionally. So if you look at the, the countries that have long maternity leaves, uh, they have fewer female CEOs and fewer women in positions of power than the U.S. does uh, because women are taking a full year off every time they have kids. Well, and sure, so they're actually, for, why not? <laughs> right. They're being pulled out of the workforce. They're getting, so they have smaller portfolios, less experience than men. So, you know, I think that one of the things I, I, I think it's an absolutely great idea for corporations and companies to support, uh, to provide maternity leave, partially because it's a, it's a competitive strategy, right? You're going to attract more highly qualified candidates if you offer maternity leave. It's also true of paternity leave. Um, you know, com- companies have now started offering paternity leave because they know that that's the way that they're going to they're gonna be able to attract high quality candidates. But each company has to be able to sort of look at the pros and cons of this and figure out whether it fits their business model and whether it's something that makes sense given the demands of their business. I don't think that a one size fits all uh, policy is good for business, largely because a lot of businesses are small businesses. And you're talking about having someone gone for up to a year at a time, that's just a huge, huge burden on businesses that they should be the ones to decide whether that's something that they can justify given the demands of both the workforce and their clients. Sure. And it's easy to say, you know, these corporations, these corporations can afford this. And then that may be true of many corporations. That may be true of Apple, Apple, Google. They can probably afford to give everyone a year's paid, even if it's not for paternity or paternity reasons. But, you know, when we pass laws about these things, they don't just target the ones who can quote unquote afford it. Laws are for everybody. And laws will also target, you know, Tom's barbershop that really can't afford to give someone a year off necessarily. And, and or just, uh, you know, whatever startup that's just trying to you know, just get by week to week, can't afford to pay someone to take a year and sit at home and raise their child, even if it would be wonderful for that person and wonderful for that child. That's not what every business is going to be capable of doing. Right. And so, you know, the argument from the left is that, well, then you'd use tax dollars to pay people's salaries like they do in Canada. So you're spreading out the cost, but you're still asking a business to essentially hold a job for someone 
find a temporary worker for that amount of time, it's incredibly disruptive. And so, you know, again, it seems like the we're gaining maternity leave, we're gaining paternity leave um, across the nation in large part because corporations are, and businesses are seeing it as a, as a good thing to offer. But a lot of companies just can't make it work. And so, again, forcing it on people is, is probably not the way to go. And ironically, it sounds like for people that would, you know, pr- support forcing companies to do this, forcing companies to give people maternity leave, they would actually be encouraging that gender gap that they're so worried about because they're going to put all these women that are taking this much leave, as much leave as they can possibly get, because why wouldn't you if it's paid for? It's actually putting them more at that disadvantage to not get those more competitive jobs and sort of lessen whatever gap there may actually be. Right, exactly. Yep. All right. I must be learning something. So if I'm getting this stuff right, (laughs) Professor Hall, one more thing I want to touch on because it's a tricky issue and I'm really interested in your perspective on it. Personally, it's a tricky, it's probably the trickiest issue and and tricky. I don't know Uh if that's a good word for it, but (laughs) you probably know what's coming, but it it is the issue of abortion. How do you relate the sort of the issue of the family and how that coincides with the classical liberal view of individual rights with abortion? Because it's difficult to me because you've got essentially, from my point of view, two individuals, because I do see that growing a life as what I said, as a life, because, you know, that it is growing, it is taking in sustenance, it's obviously turning into a full human at some point in that process. At the same time, you do have a mother at hand. And if they don't want to have this other person in them draining their their body, draining their resources, well, there's also an argument there for individual rights. So how do you see that, I guess, through the through your own personal view or for the classical liberal view, however, however you look at it? Yeah, I think it's what someone I know calls a tragic dilemma, right? There's just no good answer. Um, Yeah, you have two people. You have two people's rights that conflict with each other. Um, And uh, I think that the only real way that you can sort of solve that problem is to take viability into account. And so, you know, until until the fetus is viable, the woman's rights prevail. But as soon as that fetus is viable, I think you have to be able to limit abortion in some way, shape, or form. I'm not sure what that would look like, but there's a sort of branch of libertarianism that talks about evictionism. And so the idea is that- That's Walter Block's uh, sort of way to try to merge all of this together. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic to it, but there's, there's still a gray area, which is that, you know, viability is now 22 or 23 weeks of pregnancy. So around five to six months uh, of pregnancy, but children who are born at that age have serious, serious problems. And so really you're not just thinking about viability. You're also talking about just the health of this human being. Um, So maybe you push it to say 28 weeks, 29 weeks, where you're sure that there's not going to be there will still be health problems, but not really serious ones. But yeah, I I think at some point you have to, libertarians have to be comfortable limiting, especially late term abortions, because at that point, there's, it just seems clear to me that you're talking about um, another human being that has the same kinds of rights as the mother does. But I I think it's a such a difficult issue. um, And you certainly don't want the government getting involved, certainly in the early stages of pregnancy. I mean, that seems to be a very clear cut kind of case, as long as the child is totally dependent on its mother for survival, uh, the rights of the mother come first. Well, Lauren, I'm, I'm very opinionated, and this is such a difficult issue that after 160-plus episodes of this program, this is the first time I've even brought it up on the show. So that that's how much I was trying to avoid it, but I, I figured... <laughs> I figured I'd bring it up with you because I've heard you speak about it before. And it is, and your answer does play to the fact that, look, there is, there's just not an easy answer here because there are many, many factors at play here. And even, even Walter Block's 
you know, evictionism idea where he says, you know, if, if the baby can live outside the womb, then other and other people can take care of it. Well, then, you know, that should be allowed. But that that does ignore what you're speaking of, where you're, you're kind of deciding that this child, this person will now have health problems for their entire life if you're supporting them coming out at a certain age then. So even that is not really a, a simple solution per se. And I don't think there is right. a simple solution, but uh, it's, it's one area that I, I just I just don't know how to reconcile because it is so difficult. Mm-hmm. So yep. you're not going to have the perfect answer. Darn it. I'll keep searching. <laughs> yep. I'm sorry. It's all good. <laughs> now, Laura, Laura, before you go, why don't you tell us about your book here about family and the politics of moderation? What inspired you to take your, your research into this area and write this whole book? What is the game? What is the, uh, what is the goal and what's it all about? Well, first, thanks for uh, for letting me plug the book. Sure <laughs> you know, my, my background's in the history of political thought. And, uh, you know, while I was doing research on two of my guys, Edmund Burke and Montesquieu, I, I, I realized that they're kind of moderate guys. I mean, they're classical liberals, but they're not, you know, they're not radical libertarians. And uh, both of them take the family really seriously. So I started sort of thinking, particularly about my reading of people like Marx and Engels. And I started realizing that when you look at the extreme of political positions, um, that the family has to get, they have to get rid of the family. And so I wanted to see if that was true on the libertarian side as well. Um, and so I, I essentially looked at an individualist author, Ayn Rand, and then a couple uh, communitarian or collectivist authors, uh, Marx and Engels. And I found that in both cases, they essentially have to destroy the family because what the family does is it moderates all of our political values. So it moderates freedom. It moderates equality um, in the same way that abortion makes it so that there's no really clear answers. I mean, you can't just say freedom says that abortion is okay, right? Right. Or (laughs) rights say that that's fine. Here's the answer. Um, It's on page 34 of your freedom manual. Exactly. Right. So so the problem is that the the family just muddies all of these waters. You know, children are not born to me. You know, my kids didn't consent to be my kids. Right. They were just sort of accidentally born to me. Um, they, they're vulnerable, they're dependent. So you can't just, you know, slap kids on the back and say, be free and responsible citizens. Right. So the family challenges libertarians, it challenges, uh, collectivists and socialists. So essentially what I argue in the book is that it's really only the classical liberal tradition, people like Burke and Montesquieu and these sort of moderate political thinkers who take seriously individualism, but who also take seriously the social context in which individualism develops. Um, and it's those thinkers who I think have a, a pretty healthy attitude toward both freedom and, um, and equality. Uh, and then I talk a little bit about some, some modern policy issues like same-sex marriage, the what I call sort of the atomic family, so more and more people having same Single, uh, you know, um, single children. I talk about single parenthood, um, and then touch on polygamy. And I essentially argue that there's a kind of moderate family. There's a kind of family that supports uh, the creation of free and uh, and responsible individuals. And that's probably a monogamous family of two parents, but the sex doesn't really matter. And I give a little bit of evidence for that, but but it's mostly theoretical. So the, the overall argument is that the family serves to, to sort of moderate any kind of radical impulses that we have. We're going to have to to really grapple with the family before we try to radically restructure society. All right. Well, Lauren, I really appreciate your perspective here. It is a different one. This isn't always a family show, but today, today it kind of was. So <laughs> Lauren K. Hall, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, before I let you go again, feel free to uh, plug anything else you've got going on. Let people know how else they can find your work and how they can contact you. 
Oh, great. Um, well, you can always find my work um, on, I mean, I'm on academia.edu um, or rit.edu. Uh, you can look up the political science department and that's how you can contact me via email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. Um, but some of my work is available on academia.edu, which is sort of the Facebook for academics. Um, and absolutely check out my book, <laughs> Family and the Politics of Moderation. I've got a few other things in the pipeline on Adam Smith and, uh, and Edmund Burke. So keep your eyes peeled for those too. Professor Lauren K. Hall, keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Mark. Okay, folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Lauren Hall. And hopefully this helps you discuss some of these issues with your friends, issues that often come up from Bernie Sanders supporters, progressive types, many of which I believe we have to recognize are very well-intentioned with the sort of things they advocate. Equality for women, for example. But when we advocate equality, we have to do so in the sense of law and justice. Because to me, true equality means people should have the freedom to pursue their own desires in life. And often those desires aren't going to perfectly line up between males and females. And so, yes, we will see variation in the outcomes when it comes to who is a CEO or who is a garbage man, for that matter. But this show is really only the start of the conversation on this sort of things. It's got to continue in your own life. One place it can continue is over in our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. Just type that into your search bar on Facebook, and we'll also, of course, link to it in the show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 173. You can also follow our public Facebook page, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. Find us on Twitter, at lionsofliberty. If you enjoy this program, please do subscribe on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio, and go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and a great review. That stuff really helps us get this show uh, out to more people out there to continue this conversation. You can subscribe to our channel on YouTube as well if you like listening there. You can also hear us on the weekend at libertytalk.fm and throughout the week at lrn.fm, the Liberty Radio Network. Now stay tuned because we're not done this week. That's right. This is the first week of our brand new three-show-per-week format. And this coming Friday, we have the debut of the Felony Friday podcast, a weekly look, anything and everything in the world of felonies. So stay tuned for that. And until then, live long and live free.